Thanks, Tim. If we haven't met, my name is Ben. I'm the missions pastor here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. When I was in college, I kind of hit an identity crisis, which maybe many of you have experienced in your lives. Uh, I grew up in church my whole life. We went to a Christian Reformed church, transitioned to this very hyper-charismatic church, kind of settled on a happy medium in the middle, but never followed Jesus. I thought I heard Malachi back there. Hi, Joel. Um, I know that squeak. Uh, And... Um, <clears throat> it was, it, I never chose to follow Jesus. There, there wasn't uh, in my heart a decision that Jesus was Lord, that he died for my sin. And so I had this upbringing of Christianity, but not until when I went to college that uh, I started to think about, well, what do I believe? That's what my parents believe, but what do I believe? And it was uh, through some philosophy courses that I took that I had a great degree of difficulty nailing down like who is God in the midst of all of these religions. Why Christianity, not Islam? Why Islam, not Buddhism? Why Buddhism and not Hinduism? I had no really rhyme or reason to establish a foundation for what is true. But in my heart, I longed to know who God was and that there was in me this pull on my heart to find grounding and identity in who I was and ultimately who God was, because I felt like that would determine who I was. And I remember it was on uh, a trip to Chattanooga, Tennessee. We were doing some uh, inner city work there. I was praying with a friend. I don't really know who I was praying to, but I remember the name of Jesus dropped into my heart, and I knew he was God. And it was just this sovereign work of God in my life that he said, this is who I am. I knew Jesus was God, and I was called to follow him. Open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to continue in our series here in Genesis. This isn't the um, funnest of portions of scripture, it's a genealogy. Uh, but we're going to see the richness of God's word. Why we go exegetically through scripture is because every verse is breathed out by God and profitable. So let's read Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. God created humanity in his likeness to eternally live in the blessing of his kingship. Now, there are two two key phrases in these two verses that will help us arrive at this statement. The first is the phrase, this is the document containing the family records of. Maybe if you have ESV, it says, this is the book of the generations of. This phrase was first seen in Genesis 2 verse 4, and it's repeated 10 times throughout the book of Genesis. And it serves as a literary device For us to ask the question, what is God going to do now in his salvation story with the line of, and fill in the name of that particular person of interest? It also serves us to think backwards. What has happened beforehand in order to have continuity within the story? And so let me read these two verses again. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. Think before, think what's coming. 
On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Now, you're familiar with these words. You heard them already in Genesis 1, and we taught on uh, that passage of Scripture. But there's a unique phrase that you have not heard. And this is the second key phrase for us. It says, and called them mankind. Or if you have an ESV or another translation, it may say, and named them man. Referring to Adam and Eve. That's the male and female that were mentioned before. Elohim, that's the Hebrew word for God, in Genesis 1, called the light day and the darkness he called night. This was an authoritative act in the separation of light and darkness. It was an authoritative act of determination in its function. In our verse, God calling them man is the same. It reveals God's authority over humanity, his kingship, and is a determination of their function as ones created in his likeness to display his righteous rule on the earth. We know Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So why does Moses introduce this phrase into the narrative right now? Well, if we look backward from our section of Scripture, we just heard in the past several sermons about the downward rebellious spiral of humanity into the reign and rule of sin in their hearts. Lamech, the seventh generation from Cain, gloried in his rebellion as seen in the celebration song of death. Cain gave himself over to the rule of sin and murdered his brother. And before that, Adam and Eve despised the glory and calling of being image bearers. They disobeyed his command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's a good poignant summary statement for the rebellion of humanity as we look back? Well, in Genesis 3, it says this, The temptation of the serpent serpent was, You will be like God. Elohim. This rebellion, it was about exalting themselves, humanities exalting themselves to a position of self-rule, casting off God's rule, spurning God's ways, despising God's glory, and seeking their own autonomous kingdom. So again, why would Moses mention this now? It is a reminder in these introductory verses in Genesis 5. What was truly the place of blessing? What was the place of thriving? It was when humanity gloried in the kingship of Elohim. When God was God. It's as if God wants us to look at this and say to us, Do you remember You've just seen in all of Genesis chapter 4, you've seen the brokenness, the rebellion, but do you remember who I created you to be? I called you human, but you wanted to be Elohim. You wanted me gone and to put yourself in my place. Emphasizing Elohim or God and calling the man is determinative of human, uh, human state of flourishing a place of trusting in the Lord and in his rule, trusting in the goodness of God and trusting in their given glory to rule and have dominion. Beloved, God created you in his likeness. 
to eternally live in the blessing of his kingship. That was the beginning. That was God's purpose. And that is still his purpose. Our text continues and shows that this state of, state of being for humanity did not last long. We know that. As the first phrase has us reflect on what happened to humanity, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 summarizes it. Let's read on. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years. Then he died. Humanity embodied the reign of sin in addition to the likeness of God. Well, let's be exegetical here. It does not say in our passage that humanity still had the likeness of God. Our verses describe the image and likeness of Adam being passed down through the generations. But what does this specifically entail? And why would I encapsulate that in this summary point? Well, other portions of Scripture, like Genesis 9, Matthew 22, James chapter 3, they talk about humanity still inherently possessing the image of God. That identity and that worth, it doesn't go away after Genesis chapter 3. But Scripture also teaches that this likeness is present with a foreign power on the throne of human hearts. That of sin. Sin became woven in the fabric of humanity and now was passed down through the generations. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and Romans 5 19, For as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. Well, what's the proof of all of that? How do we know that the many were made sinners? Romans 5.17 says this, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Adam died. Up until this point, the only death that we've seen has been through murder. Cain murdered Abel. Lamech murdered a boy. But this is the first point in our narrative where we see that somebody died. They came to the end of their life. The one whom God created out of the dust breathed life into his nostrils. Now we see that the intention of God's purpose and creation now succumbed to the reign of death. Tim showed us that the rule of sin what we call the doctrine of total depravity, does not mean that we do the worst possible thing every second of every day. And Dale taught us two weeks ago that this is not about our circumstance, but about our heart. Our text even shows us that Adam lived a long life. He had lots of children. He was able to be fruitful and multiply. But brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in the common grace of God as evidence that you are a good person. Our text shows us, it wants to highlight for us that it is the finality of death for all humans that should wake us up to our condition and the condition of our, of our world. That something is really wrong. 
I worked with a doctor when I was a medical scribe who was probably, well, maybe agnostic, probably atheist, and um, he was very confident that science would ultimately solve all the problems of humanity. And when pressed on this, he said, even death, that eventually we would get to a place, if we look at the progression of humanity and that we have come so far through scientific progress, that even death, eventually, science would solve that problem. I was kind of astounded by that kind of worldview. But death cannot be remedied by humanity. Sin cannot be remedied by humanity. Let's read on. Genesis 5 or 6. Seth was, was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalalel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. If you're looking for good child names, just feel free to use any of these. <laughs> so Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. Mahalalel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalalel's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 887 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, then he died. It is not difficult to hear the common pattern in our text. Then he died, then he died, then he died. But then, all of a sudden we have this break in the pattern. Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And then God took him. Enoch didn't die. God provided a glimpse of redemption in Enoch. It's as though Moses, when writing this, is like, are you even listening to me? Like, Enoch didn't die. Somehow in all this mess, Enoch didn't experience the sting of death. So how in the world did this happen? I want this cure. It says Enoch walked with God. Here the Hebrew word for walk is halak, and it is in a unique verb form called the hitpayel verb form. Okay, cool. Why does that matter? The New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, they need to come up with a new name for that series, says this, 
A special nuance of halak occurs with the hitpayel stem, which views walking or stepping as tantamount to the exercise of sovereignty. Whether this is expressed in literal or metaphorical terms, the symbolism of dominion remains the same. What is ringing in this when you hear the word dominion? In its first occurrence with this meaning, God is described in Genesis 3 as walking in the garden, a clear allusion to his appearance to Adam and Eve as their creator and Lord. Not only are we hearing echoes of this, of image bearing, we're hearing dominion, but also of direct connection to God's kingship. We're seeing this separation between Elohim, God, and humanity, man. Do you see this common thread moving through our text in Genesis chapter 5? God's given glimpse uh, in this verse of the reversal of sin and death came through the reversal of humanity's self-exaltation. It came through one submitted to and being a conduit of God's rule on the earth. Ah, that might sound good, Ben. But all I see is the word walk in my text and not all the rest of that stuff. You need to do better than that. Noted. Let's go to the New Testament. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start at verse 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The author of the book of Hebrews unpacked our verses That author exegeted our passage. He's preaching my sermon. How dare he? It says that Enoch hoped in God. This is what faith is. It's the hope, the assurance of hope. Enoch trusted in God and in his promises. This interpretation makes perfect sense. When the verse prior to our passage, Tim talked about this last week in Genesis 4, it says that at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord calling upon God to fulfill his promises. This act of faith we see within this walking with God. That's what, how Hebrews interprets our passage. Now turn with me to Jude 1, verse 14. The second last book in the Bible, Jude 1, 14. Jude's a pretty cool book. It talks about warring angels and all kinds of good stuff. Maybe read that after church today. It says in verse 14, It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict 
all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. It's a lot of ungodliness. And concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Enoch prophesied to his generation about the Lord's authority as judge and of humanity's rebellion as evidenced by their ungodliness that it was not Elohim but themselves who sought to be God. Which makes sense because the verse prior to our passage talks about men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Tim said that that is both praying the promises of God and proclaiming the promises of God. So we should expect that those who are coming from that line are doing that, placing their trust and faith in God's promises and proclaiming God's promises. And that's exactly how the New Testament interprets this. So how would we summarize these two aspects? Let's bring it, let's merge it together. Enoch was submitted to and was a conduit of Elohim's rule upon the earth. Now, did Enoch earn his salvation? No. The text in Hebrews 11 talks about Noah receiving the righteousness that comes by faith from God. Noah also walked with God. We'll hear about that in Genesis chapter 6. And it's the same Hippiel verb form of that. And Noah definitely was not perfect. And so Enoch gave us a glimpse of image bearing, but God gave us a picture of future redemption. It was God's grace that took Enoch so that we could understand what our Redeemer was going to be like. Your Redeemer is the perfect image bearer. Let that sink in. Jesus was perfect. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. You know who's not perfect? Let me check my list here real quick. Everyone. Everyone else. Seriously, think about Jesus' perfection in light of your imperfection. Even if you think you're really good. Jesus was perfect every second of every day. He trusted the Father. He believed in the Father. He submitted to the Father. He proclaimed and established the Father's kingdom. And it wasn't just in his positive acts that he was perfect. Hebrews said that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Luke, the gospel writer, goes to great lengths to establish that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And this is no more clear than when Luke traces Jesus' lineage back to Adam and calls Adam a son of God. Then Jesus, the son of God, goes into the wilderness after this genealogy to be tempted by Satan, but succeeds in being perfectly obedient to God and to his word. He overcomes the serpent. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and when he records Peter's sermon, he writes in Acts 2, verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. 
It's not possible. This perfect one, this perfect image bearer, death could not hold him because sin had no reign over him. And so in his perfection, death could not claim him and could not hold him down. The only one that is able to redeem us. Jesus did better than Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28, let's keep reading. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son. And he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. A son of Adam would return humanity to life lived in the blessing of God's kingdom. We have at the end of our chapter here the perfect summation of all we've talked about. We have another break in the genealogical pattern in order to catch our attention. We saw a break with Enoch to catch our attention. We have a break in the genealogy here in the pattern to catch our attention. Lamech prophesies about the life of his son, whom he names Noah, a name that sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. This Hebrew word, and it's not the Hebrew word Shabbat for rest, it's the Hebrew word Naham for rest, or, or Noah and rest. So there are two words we have for rest, but they are very much correlated. This Hebrew word was first seen in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him, rested him, into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, just as a little side note, the reason that we go back to previous passages, that we want to see how is Moses using these words in order for us to gain a context for these words. And this is, this is uh, how the Bible was written. It is an unfolding narrative. And so we continue to look back and say, well, what happened and how is this building? So in Genesis 2.15 the Lord God took the man and rested him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The garden. The garden temple of God, the place of flourishing, the place of life, the place where Adam was submitted to God, where he was Elohim, where God was Elohim and Adam was man. You know what else? The same word from chapter 5, 24, when it says God took Enoch. That word took is also used in chapter 2.15, the Lord God took the man. God is taking us back to the garden. Through the line of Noah, we are setting our sights on one to come to bring humanity back into the flourishing, life-giving presence of our creator king. The son of man, the son of God, provided eternal life through his obedience. Turn with me to Romans chapter five again, and I'm gonna read a little bit of a larger portion of scripture here that will help us understand the contrast between Adam and Jesus, Adam's sin and Jesus' obedience. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
It says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Hallelujah. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Where sin increased, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. All the way back from Genesis chapter 5, God knew what was coming. And he gave us these glimpses. He's coming. He's going to be like this, the perfect image bearer. And his salvation is going to return humanity to my place of blessing. And it's going to return humanity to right relationship with me. That I would be Elohim and humanity would be humanity. They would understand my goodness. They would trust my ways. And they would flourish in my blessing. And this happens through Christ Jesus. We still die. Because the story is not yet finished. But we also have hope because of what Jesus has done. We get to walk with him now. And we get to walk with him eternally. Brothers and sisters, call on the name of Jesus. And walk in his life forever. I want to invite the worship team to come back up and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that shows us how far we've fallen, that shows us the true condition of our hearts, that deep within us we desire to be God that we trust our own ways, our own feelings, our own desires, that we have defined good according to our own understanding. God, we ask that you would forgive us 
for our arrogance. Forgive us for our self-sufficiency. Forgive us for not thanking you for our lives, for our breath, for our well-being. God, and we thank you for Jesus that in the midst of our deep darkness, our rebellion against you, desiring to be God, you would still pursue and redeem. You would send your son an abundance of grace that sin and death would no longer have the final say, but Jesus, that you would. That you, Jesus, are enough that your grace is enough and we get to rejoice and to boast in that, not that we are anything, but that you are everything, that there is freedom because of what you have done, because of your obedience, not because of our goodness, not because of our sin, it's because of you, Jesus, that we have life. And so God, write this word on our hearts. Lead us to grow in worship, in trust, in being a vessel of your kingdom, calling on your name and proclaiming your name. Amen. Would you stand in worship? In college, uh, I had a lot of catching up to do on Christian music, and uh, so there was a song by Rich Mullins that was, Oh God, You Are My God, and uh, man, the simplicity of those lyrics, I, I would listen to that song over and over, and it encapsulated what had happened in my life, that I went from not knowing God, living for self, to knowing God and living for him. And so I want us to sing this together. Um, we won't have the band, so feel free just to belt it out. <laughs> oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me. And I will follow you all of my days. Amen. Liberty Christian Fellowship, call on the name of Jesus and walk in his life forever. We love you guys. Bless you. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Uh, we have a welcome event if you want to meet a pastor. Uh, I think we're meeting out, out back in the coffee area. Uh, you're welcome to come back there. Say hi. Uh, if you have questions about Christianity or what it is to follow Jesus, feel free to come forward, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Bless you guys.